Mark Sarufim is the author of an article entitled Machine Learning the Great Stagnation. Mark is a PyTorch partner engineer with Facebook AI. He spent his entire career developing machine learning and artificial intelligence products, which gives him a very interesting take on machine learning products, product engineering, and academia. Before joining Facebook to do PyTorch engineering, Mark was a machine learning engineer at GraphCore, and before that he founded Yuri.ai. He's also published lots of other content about machine learning, and in this episode we discuss machine learning subjects and his experience developing cutting-edge software. A few announcements before we get started. One, if you like Clubhouse, subscribe to the Club for Software Daily on Clubhouse. It's just Software Daily, and we'll be doing some interesting Clubhouse sessions within the next few weeks. Uh, and two, if you are looking for a job, we are hiring a variety of roles. We're looking for a social media manager, we're looking for a graphic designer, and we're looking for writers. If you are interested in contributing content to Software Engineering Daily, or even if you're a podcaster and you're curious about how to get involved, we are looking for people with interesting backgrounds who can contribute to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, again, mostly we're looking for social media help and design help, but if you're a writer or a podcaster, we'd also love to hear from you. You can send me an email with your resume, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. That's Jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jeff. Appreciate it. Good to be here. The impetus for this show is an article you wrote called Machine Learning the Great Stagnation. And I'd like to dig into your ideas there. You're currently working at Facebook as an AI engineer, and that's obviously an esteemed job. It speaks to your level of expertise. So I'll just start off with a fairly open-ended question. What are the most acute problems in the machine learning culture ecosystem? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I think as you alluded to, like there's a couple, but I think a lot of it boiled down to uh, personal incentives. So, so what I mean by that is we've gotten to a point today where, you know, like there's sort of been this long-standing feeling in the community, like as soon as we got to larger and larger models, that there, there's a paper called attention is all you need, you know, referring to having attention networks and, and just scaling them and getting great performance. And I've also seen the people say the meme like, like money is all you need. And I just feel like even though I feel I have actually two positions on this, like one, I feel this is sort of an intellectually lazy position. And I'll get to that in a second. But just like up front, what, what's going on is that like, well, like, let's say you yourself work at an esteemed lab that you have lots of students well, what you can do is like you can parallelize a, a bunch of experiments over all of your students. And so the main algorithm in machine learning is called like gradient descent. So you're optimizing some function. But graduate student descent is, is like a term I coined in the article that essentially refers to parallelizing work across all of your students. And then as soon as like one of them works out, then great. And obviously, like this, this sort of algorithm is accommodating for a lab with, with larger resources. And there's feedback loops. Like, for example, like let's say your colleagues are also running lots of these kinds of experiments and they're not necessarily publishing them. Well, you can learn a lot from them. And so overall, and here's the thing, I think for, for a long time, like just because of the title of the field, like AI or artificial intelligence, like it sounds like what a lot of us do is, is really cutting edge. Uh, but for me, it's sort of like, uh, even though like I, I'm in the field myself, 
I'm okay with poking fun at my own skill set. And what I started to realize was, was happening was, in fact, like we weren't doing much really innovative work. What we were essentially doing was scaling stuff that we knew worked well and basically hoping for the best. And so there's sort of like this competition among a lot of larger tech companies where they're like, well, we trained a trillion parameter model or we trained a 10 trillion parameter model. And this is easy PR. I think CPU manufacturers, for example, have been doing this for a long time. They're like, oh, like we have like, you know, a billion threads and I don't know how many cores. And that all sounds great and good, but really what matters more is the, like, you know, the task level performance and is it like an economical decision? So actually, I mean, like one thing I also want to quickly bring up is that even though there are all of these incentives, I think people end up hating on large models for a lot of wrong reasons. And I think one of them is people say, well, you know, these things have these insane energy requirements, and, you know, we're going to destroy the planet by like, you know, training larger and larger models. I think this is nonsense. Like I actually wrote an article sort of looking, a newer one, looking at the energy requirements for larger language models. And it's like nowhere near anything to be fearful of. And the way they work makes it so that they're actually insanely efficient. So there's definitely a lot to unpack here. So let me know what's interesting and we can dive deeper into it. Well, not to take you off course uh, so early, but given that you've looked at some energy requirement stuff, do you have any any perspective on the whole Bitcoin debate, whether uh, crypto is too energy intensive to justify? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Like, so I'm just going to restrict this discussion to Bitcoin because I'm not, I, I don't know much about too much the other efforts too much. But here's the way I think of it. I think a lot of people that criticize uh, Bitcoin, they'll often say something like, well, it uses as much energy as Sweden, for example. And I think that claim is meant to provide like a certain sense of shock value, like, oh, wow, like this is really bad. You know, it shouldn't like. And But I think what it really comes down to is like a lot of critics of, of, of Bitcoin often aren't criticizing its energy use, what they're criticizing Sorry, they're not criticizing its large amount of energy use. What they're actually getting to is Bitcoin shouldn't be entitled to any energy at all. And I think this is sort of a dangerous point of view because, well, you end up in situations like, well, like, let's say, you know, like I'm, I'm balding, right? So I don't particularly need a hairdryer. But if you take, took the total sum of all hair dryers in the world, like it's also like a substantial amount of energy. But, you know, it would be absolutely insane for me to go and make the claim, you know, it's like, you know, maybe maybe we don't need hair dryers. So that meme aside, like just specifically looking at Bitcoin, I think what people don't understand about it is, again, like they'll compare it to something like Visa and they'll say, well, like, you know, Visa does, you know, like, I don't know, a billion transactions a second. Bitcoin does like 30. Uh, therefore, Bitcoin is useless. But really what I think of it is it's sort of like a, a spectrum of do you want something to be fast and centralized or do you want it to be slow and decentralized? And so at the base layer, Bitcoin provides something that's very slow, but very trustworthy, where you don't need to trust anyone. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have Visa, where I need to trust Visa and they can look at all my transactions. But I know that is very fast. Bringing this discussion back to language models, I think they have a similar characteristic in that a lot of critics of large language models, they don't like them for two reasons. They'll say something like, well, this is just big tech that is destroying the incentive structure in academia. So that's point one. But then the second point is, wow, but these things are using so much energy at some point we're going to you know, destroy the planet because of them. And what my point in my article was like, you know, these are mutually like you can't have both positions. 
Because if you like, well, the nice thing about language models is that you can fine tune them. You can use them as, as a base layer for whatever other model you're using. And so effectively, whatever work some big company does to make a language model really good can be leveraged by thousands of engineers when it comes to fine tuning it, but also be leveraged by millions of people when it comes to pre-training them. So even though if you look at, let's say, Google's latest switch transformer, which you know uses about three times the amount of energy as a plane trip from SF to New York. Again, in the paper, they try to say, oh, wow, that's a lot. But when I looked at it, I was like, wow, that's actually very little because you know there's maybe like five or six such models being trained every year. Whereas if you look at airplanes, you know, there's maybe like you know, 40 million flights happening every year. Whereas a flight can only service the people that are on the plane, whereas a language model can potentially service millions or billions of people. So they're actually insanely energy efficient. And you know, and I think they also have some interesting implications for how to design energy grids, which is also true for Bitcoin. The the idea of building really, really large language models, I think of this as something that you can do much more effectively in in industry than in academia. Because in industry, you just have access to a greater array of resources, a greater array of domain-specific tools probably higher quality coworkers uh, on balance. What does academia offer these days in the realm of machine learning research? Does academia really offer anything of, of significance or is it is it a total, no offense to the academics, but I'm, I'm just genuinely curious, like, is it effectively like kind of a, a lost cause? So that's actually a, a complex question. So let's dissect it a bit. So, so I think like, like part of the issue is that like, like the first thing you've alluded to is there's just some things that industry is better at. And I think one of those things is, is scaling and basically like execute, like you basically using resources to have some sort of predetermined outcome. I think like industry just shines at it because like you have sort of like these top down hierarchies, you have like large sources of funding, you have PR, you know, you're not like arguing over grants and stuff. But there's effectively another class of academic nowadays where it's become very common for a lot of computer science professors to have a dual affiliation where they also work for a large tech company. So it's very common to see someone like, let's say, work at Berkeley or CMU, but then they're also like, you know, a manager at uh, like Microsoft or Amazon. And th that arrangement is, is, I find it a bit bizarre. So like, I mean, from a professor's perspective, it's great, right? Because there's no downside. As in, you know, like you can have the nice academic cushy job. So sorry, you can have the freedom of an academic job, but then you can, and the prestige of it, but you can also have like the reliable high income uh, for, for that, that you would generally get at a larger tech company. And this is interesting because, like, I mean, most people at larger tech companies won't have that level of freedom. So I think these kinds of academics have sort of gamed the system for something that works really well in the short term. And one thing I call them out in my article is that, well, like, if you're if you're sort of engaging in this kind of uh, arrangement, like you have to somewhat be honest with yourself and not call yourself a risk taker. And the thing that it reminded me of quite a bit was. You know, like sometimes I would watch like something like CNBC finance and you'd have like some person sit and talk about like, I don't know, some fears in the stock market or how actually the stock market is underpriced or something. But, you know, regardless of what they say and or how accurate their predictions are, they just continue going up on television and just like talking because like they're they're, they're sort of like known thought leaders. But it's not their portfolio that we're measuring them on. It's just basically like how, how charismatic they are or how compelling their words are. 
So I think though, like, so again, you know, when it comes to large model training or anything that involves scale, I don't think academia has a lot to offer anymore. But when it comes to, you know, basically cheaper techniques, I think there's a lot of things that academics could offer if like, you know, they sort of change their, their mindset a bit. And what I mean by that is like, if your attitude as well, you know, machine learning has been, is going to be solved by scaling. Uh, great. You know, you should stop being a machine learning professor. You should go get a job at a big tech company and you should go scale these companies and you should go scale these techniques. But if you do genuinely believe that these techniques, that's, that these larger techniques aren't the way to go and that there's more efficient techniques that involve like, you know, biasing your models a bit more, then I think being an academic is still great. And what you can do there is basically instead of arguing with people on Twitter that like, well, my technique is the best, you can, for example, produce a data set but yourself where your technique really shines and basically tell people like, look, here's the data set I have, you know, the large transform models really suck on it. My technique seems decent. You know, how come? That's a very interesting discussion. Unfortunately, though, there's another bias here where a lot of papers are essentially judged to have the need to be state of the art, which means that iterating on data sets isn't as important as, as iterating on algorithms on specific data sets. And I have this strong opinion as well in the reinforcement learning field, like, like everywhere, but yeah, I mean, I think academia still has a lot to offer. They just have to go about things fairly differently and not compete with big tech companies at stuff that they already excel at. We've talked around the ideas of your, your paper at this point, but let's get into it head on. So machine learning, the great stagnation, your article explores a lot of ideas. What are the key points you're trying to hone in on? Yes. So, so, so I think there were really two uh, main points that I wanted to, to address. I think a lot of people sort of stick to the first half. And the first half is, is, I guess, like more bombastic and where I explore various incentive structures that make it so core ML research has somewhat stagnated. So one of these is basically a rise in complexity where you know, like, because everything needs to be state of the art, like a very reliable way of making something state of the art is you take something that used to be state of the art, like a generation ago, and then you just make some random changes to it. And then eventually you can get something that works and you can reproduce and, and then you can share that. And then, you know, you get famous, you get Twitter followers, people may more pay attention to you. You get like big academic appointments where you can get more students to do the same kind of incremental research. But I jokingly said, and, and actually this is not something that, even though it's, it's it's a very obvious point to a lot of people that are in machine learning. Like I, I had this joke in, in the article where I said like matrix multiplication is all you need. And it's true. Like, I mean, regardless of whether you're using transformers or recurrent neural network or convolutional neural network, they're all in some shape or form, uh, like a form of matrix multiplication. So I also had this joke on Twitter, like about like a couple of years back where I said, you know, like eventually someone is going to say like, you know, multi-layer perceptrons is all you need. And then, you know, like lo and behold, like there was like a paper by a bunch of Google people saying like, well, yeah, with a bunch of clever tricks, you can just use multi-layer perceptrons and you can beat transformers. And so all of these ideas are encapsulated by this like really nice, like very short, like one page essay by Rich Sutton uh, called The Bitter Lesson, which is that like ultimately scale wins. And as much as we like humans like to think our ideas are really clever, it seems, you know, that in a lot of cases, they're not really all that clever. So, so that's sort of like how I think the, the first half ends. And there's a couple of more ideas. And 
like really one of the main ones that I'd been exploring was this idea of like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. So, and what that means is like, I went to school in a Catholic school for 12 years and a lot of like basically like scholarly religious debates at the time in, in Constantinople were like, you know, this very, like, you know, there were people writing like dissertations about like how many angels can you fit on the head of a pin where the arguments were, are angels material or not? Or do, do they have some way of becoming material? And people like wrote these like long, you know, essays about it. Uh, and while all of this was happening, like the Ottomans just invaded Constantinople and, and took it down. So it's sort of, you know, like it's sort of a warning to not be too navel gazing and sort of acknowledge when your ideas maybe aren't necessarily very good. So that's the first half of the article. But then the second half was really, you know, like after I wrote this, I'm like, well, you know, but obviously I'm still in the field, right? So, so, so how come? And I started being a lot more attentive to projects that I thought were very compelling that, ne that, that weren't necessarily very popular in the core ML community. For example, like one idea I'm really bullish on is the idea of people building more game simulators. So Unity is a game engine, for example. And you can build like all, like you can basically build any game you want. You know, you, it can involve like language. You could like, let's say a robot needs to talk, you know, to like, like a button and then push some boxes and then it needs to go drive a car. So you can have like these very complex modalities of things that people need to do where we could say, well, you know, if something does solve this kind of environment that, you know, it feels like it's pretty clever. But unfortunately, most machine learning engineers are not game developers. So instead of building environments to test out interesting capabilities, what they will do instead is they'll over-optimize on existing benchmarks like Atari. And I think Atari has been so overdone. Like, I'm sure if you throw a data center at the problem, you can solve most Atari problems. But I just don't think that's an interesting research contribution. So that's one. And then I think others are we're more on the language space. Like, let's say, for example, building languages where you can differentiate stuff more easily, like let's say like, like in Julia or languages uh, like in Haskell, where you can potentially have like these two, three line descriptions for complex like neural network architectures. Or if it's something like fast AI, where, you know, what you're thinking about is like, what are the software patterns that make it easy to build machine learning code? So sort of like the gang of four, but applied to ML, like, what does that look like? So I think all of these are extremely interesting, but I just don't see any of these ideas gaining much popularity outside of like basically a couple of niche areas on Twitter. And this is sort of why I end my article with saying is that like, I've basically been reading papers a lot less. And what I've been doing more is basically trying to find uh, pockets of interesting people online and then just trying to figure out like what they're doing. And that's just generally been very rewarding for me. And I think that's sort of like the challenge, right? Like if, if your expectation is like, well, I'm going to be in this field where you can feel like a lot of the incentive structures are corroding, like, and a lot of people feel it. And then you just stay in the field and you don't ask any questions. Well, you know, surprise, like, you know, a couple of years later, you know, you're probably not going to do anything that interesting. Or basically in the short term, you can benefit from like the, the hype and the media and stuff. But I think in the long term, this is not a great strategy. It's actually also why I recommend for a lot of junior researchers when I, when I wrote the article, one of the most common questions I got asked was like, should I do a PhD? And my question to that, you know, sorry, like, like my answer to that was like, well, like right now you can make, you know, really good money just basically pip installing stuff. So why not take advantage of that, like build a safety net for yourself, but use the spare time and the safety net to find other stuff to be interested in and, and, and to work on and don't over optimize for something that is very, that has a lot of hype uh, right now. To take 
a bit of a devil's advocate approach to your title. Are we actually in a great stagnation? Because I see what what's happening is you basically have a confluence of some different elements. So number one, almost nobody can write machine learning applications. Like plenty of people can write front-end web applications. The tools are very easy, uh, much easier to conceptualize what you're doing. But you take machine learning applications, that's a lot harder. And two, the tooling for the few people who can write machine learning applications has accelerated so fast. Like It's developed so quickly relative to the surface area of applications that we need to build, that we can build, the opportunities that are available to us, that basically all the machine learning engineers are tied up doing application development with stuff that they know is going to work. So it's sort of like, well, what? I mean, who needs to who needs to innovate that much right now when when we've got so much ground to cover with the pre-existing technological tools? So, like, I would argue that we're, that we're not in a great stagnation. I actually agree with you. I mean, like, it depends on what you define the scope of stagnation over. Like, really, what I was saying in the article was core ML has stagnated, as in, if you think of like the core field, as in. You know, I don't know, people doing uh, churn-off bounds or proving convergence proofs or people innovating on new architectures. Like, I think all of that work may not be as useful as people uh, think it is. But, but of course, like, I think when it comes to like deploying these models, I think there's sort of almost like a Wild West aspect to it, right? Where, like, let's say you want to think about experiment tracking, like there's dozens of startups. You want to think about like managing pipelines, there's dozens of startups. You want to think about like dashboarding, again, dozens of startups. I think all of these are, these in themselves, in of themselves aren't necessarily interesting academic problems, but they are interesting problems. And I think there's no clear uh, solution to them. And even for me, this is something I struggle with at, at my day job, like just trying to think about like, what are the kinds of tools I want to use? Like, how do, how do I make sure like my work is leverageable to the maximum amount of people very easily at scale? Like, like these are all hard problems. And again, I just don't know of all that many academics that work with the stuff. Like outside of a few exceptions, obviously like people like Matei Zaharia from like Databricks and stuff, like they, they think about that, all that stuff. But you know, there are more people, I guess, that would have a hacker leaning as opposed to a mathematician lean. And I think that's, again, another area where interesting stuff is happening. So like languages is one aspect. The tooling is one aspect. The best practices for that tooling is another aspect. All of these areas are still exploding as far as I can tell and and increasing at an exponential pace, actually. So um, do you see this article as simply making a set of observations or are you trying to encourage a call to action? Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's hard for the article to sort of be treated in a vacuum because after I wrote it, like, I realized it was just so common. Like, a lot of, so many people were reaching out to me on, on Twitter or, like, LinkedIn DMs, like, saying, like, well, what, what should I do? It's like, it's like, I agree. Like, I've noticed the same thing. So what should I do for my career? And at first, like, I spent a lot of time just, like, you know, I was on vacation at the time, too, and I spent, like, most of it on my laptop, like, answering, like, people's questions and, you know, a bit acting like a therapist where I was, like, you know, like, going through people's, like, personal situations and trying to think through what they were doing. But then I quickly realized that, like, a lot of the themes are tied to generally how to manage risk in your career. And so I had another talk at USF about it, which is like about like managing career stagnation that I think is very relevant. 
and again, after that talk, a lot more people started reaching out to me. So that's why now like, I manage a Discord channel called uh, like The Robot Overlords, which was a spin-on, an e- like the name is a spin-on an ebook that I wrote about robotics and, and ML and, and, like about two years ago, where I basically help people, I guess, the, what we call it is like becoming like a sovereign researcher is the main theme. And what we mean by that is how can you basically build skills that help you get like a few money so that you can engineer the kind of life that you want to have and not necessarily being uh, too caught up like by incentive structures that you see around you. So, so basically, it's like, how can you be very aware of the kinds of incentives in, in your field? Uh, be very aware of them. Uh, gain them if you need to basically build a safety net for yourself. But once you've built that safety net, I think that's sort of when the interesting part of life starts. And and basically how to leverage that, like whether it's, you know, writing research independently on your blog, whether it's building a SaaS startup, whether it's, you know, writing ebooks. I think these are all very interesting directions for people. And it's also why I think like COVID sort of presented an interesting opportunity for a lot of engineers where, you know, in the past you can imagine, like, let's say you weren't particularly charismatic, it would be hard for you to, you know, get leverage and, and convince a whole bunch of people to do something that you want to do at work. But like, if you're a good writer and you, you write like a really like, like a compelling proposal or write a compelling weakness for your product or say like, we should fund this thing and here's why. I think it's very democratizing, right? Because people will judge you for the quality of your writing and the quality of your ideas and not necessarily for how senior you are in the company or how highly you're paid. So I think there's a very democratizing aspect to all of these. And so, yeah, definitely it was a call to action, but it wasn't a call to action to people who identify themselves very strongly as academics. In fact, like, I mean, I had friends that identify purely as academics who read the article, got very mad at me. They just told me like straight up, like, you don't know what you're talking about. And this article is very sloppy and et cetera. And at first I took the feedback to heart and I was trying to get to like, like, what are they really saying? Like, was I sloppy in my thinking? But after like, you know, going over the article again and again, I realized like, no, it wasn't very sloppy, but you're just sort of threatening a worldview. And that's always dangerous, right? Like in my case, I, I feel I'm generally pretty okay with realizing like, you know, maybe the skill set I invested a couple of years in isn't very useful. Like that's something I'm psychologically okay with. But I do recognize that it is a painful uh, thing to hear. However, it, it helped me attract the kind of people that have these kinds of similar thoughts, like whether it's to my Discord channel or on Twitter, or just generally people that want to give me feedback on my future articles. So even though the, the article did ruffle a few feathers, I think it helped me meet some of the most interesting people I've ever met in my life. And it's also why I'm so bullish on writing online anyway, because again, like it's like if I compare it to something like networking at a conference, it's very low signal. Like, you know, you basically talk to people because you're in a similar proximity. Well, maybe because you're grabbing coffee in a similar place, or maybe they said something you thought was compelling at a talk. But I think when it comes to sort of professional fleshing out ideas, I think that the internet is, is, a, is a much more powerful force than, than online conferences. As I mentioned, you work at Facebook, and I actually, I don't know if you know this, I just wrote a book about Facebook. I spent two and a half years writing a book about how Facebook engineering works. So I have a lot of familiarity with the culture of the company and how unique engineering is there and how unique people think about it. I actually did not focus much of the book on artificial intelligence or machine learning. So I don't know a ton about how the engineering, the machine learning engineering teams work there. But, you know, given given that you're you're pretty familiar with the industry as a whole, 
uh, and and you've been at Facebook. I know you're only been there three months, and you know I I, I know you're you're fairly new, so I, I wouldn't ask you to like go super deep on on anything. But I would love to hear in broad strokes, I because I know how unique Facebook is, but I would love to to know in broad strokes how the Facebook uh, engineering approach to to uh, machine learning and AI differs from the rest of the industry. So when I'm thinking about making the comparison, I think a lot of it will apply to just regular. You know, like software engineering at Facebook, like without ML, I think, and with ML, they have fairly similar approaches. So I think for me, at least the big shocks when I first joined Facebook was one is, is, is the monorepo. And I know people have mixed feelings about it, but I personally really like it because I feel like, you know, it, it unblocks me very quickly as in, I don't know how something works. Like, well, I can just go to the source code. I don't need to go argue with a PM about something and go figure out how this thing works. So I think, though, the, the main challenge, though, is that because like Facebook doesn't have a cloud offering, is that you end up having like infrastructure internally that doesn't look like what people use externally, which generally isn't an issue for most Facebook teams. But when you think of like, let's say my team, which is the PyTorch team, like this is an issue because like most of our customers have, you know, will use something like AWS or Azure or GCP. I mean, that's not what we use internally, right? And so, so that's not what our tooling looks like. And so you end up having to be aware of both sort of the internal and the external world because you have internal customers where you want to increase adoption of PyTorch. But you also have external customers where you want to increase adoption of PyTorch and make everyone's life a lot easier. But, but generally, like I would say, you know, just looking at the culture, there's definitely like an emphasis on speed. I think the people I've met at Facebook have been some of the uh, hardest working uh, people I've met. And so there's, uh, of course, like an emphasis on, on getting stuff done very quickly. But then the other thing that I really, really love is that I often noticed sometimes I would see someone who would be very active in a lot of internal groups, writing very interesting specs. And, you know, they're behind a bunch of interesting open source projects. But then, you know, maybe they're just like out of college, like for two years. And I, I found this amazing because like generally in, in other places I've been on, it seems that like like the more senior you are, like that's you're the, supposed to be the person that orchestrates plans, and then basically more junior people or, or like ICs have to basically go execute. But one of like the really pleasant surprises at Facebook is that you know it's very common to see someone who's an IC who can be extremely high impact and just like basically write specs that determine the outcome of what you know hundreds of people will work on and they're not going to have a single person report to them so i think that's really compelling and that there's like a big you know respect for talented engineers and of course like they also generally have to be good writers right like you have to write something that's compelling for other people to read but the fact that that's even available to you, that you can just post something interesting on a group and share is great because other companies I've been on, generally, if you want to propose something that's a bit different, you know, you, you know, run it by your manager and then they run it by their manager and then you invite a bunch of more people and you have another kickoff meetings. So this is all very costly. I think it's very time consuming to orchestrate all of these meetings. So just being able to write down your ideas and say, this is what I think is the right thing to do and then have people like, agree or disagree with you directly on the document. I think has been a profound culture change that I think I've personally very like really really loved. And uh, Facebook is obviously on one side of the framework wars, or I don't I don't know how, to what extent it's a war. Uh, again, this is an area I'm not super familiar with, but I know that Facebook has the PyTorch side of things. Google has the TensorFlow side of things when it comes to frameworks. Is this one of these winner take all? 
in the long term scenarios, like with you know, because there's other technological paradigms where it's where it's been winner take all. Like React basically won on the front end. Kubernetes won in container orchestration. Is that the case with machine learning frameworks, or is it going to be like TensorFlow and PyTorch for a very very long time? So the funny thing, like about this point, is like let's say if you were comparing TensorFlow and PyTorch like five years ago. Like they looked very different, but you know, I would argue like nowadays, if you're comparing something like PyTorch to the new Keras API, like they look pretty darn similar. And then if you consider that a lot of people are using some top level frameworks, like, you know, like let's say stuff like, like Hugging Face, then, you know, which are like language agnostic, then it seems to me that in of itself, like a like a language isn't that much of a moat. Like what matters is the community around it. Like basically, are people building interesting stuff around it? Is there mind share? Do people have like a feel like there's an easy path from like research to production? But I think like no one internally, I I, I haven't seen anyone internally use the term the term frameworks war, because I think it, it's like I mean I, I don't necessarily think it's like that zero sum, and then the libraries borrow so much interest ideas from each other that I don't think that they represent like sort of a fundamentally like different shift to how you do machine learning. I think the comparisons get more interesting. Like, let's say if you're thinking about like newer frameworks like Jax, which are uh, pretty different, but again, you know, like a lot of the best ideas do make it back to the top level frameworks like TensorFlow and PyTorch. But again, you know, I think there's this easy bias to think of these things as being adversarial, but then like, you know, like PyTorch is supported on TPUs and the reason it's supported on TPUs is because, you know, customers have asked for it. So like, and and then the teams actually work fairly closely with each other. And so I think it's easy to imagine that there would be an adversarial relationship, but from what I can gather from my short time at Facebook, that just hasn't been the case yet. I have done more shows in the last couple years, far more shows, frankly, about data engineering than I have about machine learning. And my sense is that there's a pretty interesting division of labor between these different departments. How do you see and and I think of it as sort of like you know pre DevOps world maybe like you know pre DevOps you 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 had kind of an uncomfortable division of labor between the people who are the people who are operating systems and the people who are writing new code and I wonder to what extent today there is that sort of divide between the data engineering infrastructure people and the people that are building the uh, machine learning models and applications. Oh, that's, that's a great question. So the, the short answer there is I think by identifying yourself as a data engineer, you're basically just signaling to the market that you want to be paid half of what machine learning. <laughs> and so the reason I say that is because, you know, like if I were to look at like I had this meme on, even as well on, on the on the stagnation article, but like let's say in, in like data engineering is a very thankless job in that like like if everything works fine, you're invisible. So no one's thanking you when everything's perfect. But when stuff breaks, it's very public. Like you get woken up in the middle of the light. Like, you know, maybe there's data that you can never recover. Maybe you're losing money. The inferences are not working. 
working, something happened with, and it's a very complex systems, right? Like you're dealing with like, like a billion services in AWS. It's not really like, you know, Kubernetes adds like another layer of complexity on top of this stuff. So it's just like very, very complicated. And I think because it's so complicated, people imagine, well, like, oh, but this machine learning thing, like I need to know this complicated stats and stuff. But the reality of it today is that like, if you want to use something like a pre-trained model, like all you need to do is, you know, W get a model, like a model, a model file, and then, you know, like load this model with a framework like PyTorch, and then just call like model.forward on your inference and, and, and get an inference. So like, again, I think it's one of those things where I hear this a lot as well from junior people and they go like, oh, but I want to be the person like writing the algorithms. And, you know, like one of my thoughts to that is like, well, it's not really that much involved in it. Like, you know, like we talked about stuff like graduate student descent, you know, you take something that exists, you pip install it, you change like a couple of stuff, it works, and then you blabber on for eight pages about how it's better. So Obviously, that's not true for all research, but a lot of research, I think, in ML can be reduced to a tweet where you say, I took this architecture, I changed X, here is the plot. It's great. You know, so, so this could be a very common format instead of like the regular eight pages that we use quite a bit. So I guess like my advice to data engineers is often like, I think their skill set is actually more difficult and more involved than the core ML skill set nowadays. And I think it's, you just need to know just a bit of ML to be dangerous. And what that is, in, in my opinion, is learning how to load the pre-trained model, I think just functionally. But when it comes to like the math of ML, I think if you understand how gradient descent works and how to derive like square functions, that's 80% and how to multiply matrices, like that's probably 80% of what you need to be able to read most ML work nowadays. If you were to point to the most underdeveloped part of the data engineering stack, what would you point to? So that's interesting, like, because I, I don't think of any part of the stack as being that underdeveloped. And, and what I mean by that is that like, if you want to elastically scale models, like there's stuff that exists. If you want to do a distributed training, like at massive scale, like, you know, like the Megatron work for NVIDIA, you could use something like DeepSpeed from Microsoft. If you want to do uh, like experiment archiving, like, you know, weights and biases is great. You want to do A-B testing, the stuff exists, you know? So for me, it's not necessarily that I think of parts as being underdeveloped. It's just, I think there is an overwhelming amount of choice where it's not entirely clear what's 10x better. And so I just think it's a question of people basically settling on a bunch of best practices and deciding, okay, well, this is what I think, for example, is the best way to serve models. But to your point, it's like as a whole scope, I think, that just in general, deploying models to production, I think is underdeveloped, but not underdeveloped in the sense that stuff doesn't exist, but just like too much stuff exists. And it involves like, you know, like just constantly, like it reminds me a lot of like the early web days. So before sort of React uh, came out on top, uh, this was maybe, I don't know, like 2013 or something. I got very interested in web development and I was like, okay, I want to learn a bit more about this to deploy stuff. And I remember it felt like a new framework was coming out every week. And so I'd be like, okay, well, you know, I should be using Angular. And then people are like, no, no, you should use React. That's like, no, no, you should use Vue. And then, no, 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 you should use Svelte. And then it, this kept happening like almost on a weekly basis where I felt like, like, why am I bothering to learn about any of this if whatever technology I'm going to learn is going to be obsolete in a couple of weeks? So I'm getting a very similar feeling from the ML ops space, but I think it's good in the sense that, you know, having lots of competition is good because it means that 
people have lots of ideas about the best ways to do ML in production. But I would hope that over time that people can somewhat converge to a bunch of good best practices where you think, okay, well, I want to deploy a model that does some inferences at scale and see all of the dashboards for it really easily. That, you know, at least that core use case will be very obviously dealt with by a couple of companies or a couple of open source projects. But I don't think we're there yet. And again, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think competition is good in this respect. What are the newer AI tools? Well, in your in your article, you mentioned Hugging Face. And you mentioned Hugging Face as, as one of the more transformative companies related to AI infrastructure. You know, I think the, the world of AI infrastructures is pretty interesting because I think going to market with AI tools is really, really tough for, for a number of reasons. One, they're really hard to develop. You know, two, it's really hard to hire a team. Three, you're kind of complete competing with commodity cloud provider solutions. You know, four, you're competing with open source projects. There's all kinds of things that make building a an AI a successful AI tooling company quite tough. What are the the big category winners in the space? The companies you're excited about? Let's talk a bit about Hugging Face because I met a lot of people over the years, and I would ask them this question: like, why do you think Hugging Face is so big? Like, how can they capture so much mindshare where, like, their number of GitHub stars, like, rivals, for example, TensorFlow or PyTorch? Like, it's insane when you think about it. It's like, it's like a couple of PhD students can build something that rivals what billion, like, the largest companies in history uh, can build. Like, that, that's amazing. And so I actually wrote an article about this called The Rise of Hugging Face, where I tried to explore a bit more, like, why I feel like Hugging Face became so big. And the question is, is maybe a, a, bit, a bit more convoluted than just it's a platform company because I don't think it's a platform company. I, I think it's a platform company and a community company. So what do I mean by this? Like traditionally, if you look at the business models of ML, the ones we're all familiar with for just regular from the SaaS days, I guess, is, you know, maybe you're a service, you know, like I call your API and you give me an inference. This has generally not led to a good moat in ML. Like there's efforts, for example, like Microsoft had Azure Cognitive Services. As far as I know, that's been a flop just because people like the I like the fact that they can change the thing they're working with. Like they don't want this like gigantic black box and like to be privy to this company. Like they, they want to feel like they're they're doing something. Then there's the consultancies. Almost all ML startups that I'm aware of uh, that, that fail because like they sort of never get out of the consultancy phase, including my own startup, by the way. Like I was doing a, like an RL serve, like a reinforcement learning service for game developers. It's just really hard to get to a point where everything is self-serve, that you have like the right primitives, like in your code, that every everyone thinks that stuff is very easy. That's very hard. Then you have like what I call like the media companies, which is like OpenAI, for example, you know, where you build like really beautiful and amazing demos that inspire people, but you're not really selling them anything. So effectively, you're somewhat competing against companies like the New York Times in this respect. And so when I recently saw that OpenAI decided to also become a venture fund, I wasn't surprised at all because I think it's a great position to be in if you're a media company, because you get basically the smart people naturally gravitating towards you. If smart people are using your API, you know who's doing what, and you can basically leverage them and fund the right people by having knowledge that may not necessarily be accessible to the open market. Then there's platforms. So platforms are, you know, again, what we've talked about, it's like stuff you can, you can build stuff on top of it. So I think weights and biases is, is like a good example of this. But then I think Hugging Face was something different in that I think it was a community-based company. And here's really what I mean by that. I think that for a lot of tech, tech people, 
we have a similar hustle at this point where, you know, maybe you work at a big tech company, but, you know, you're dreaming of making it big at a big tech startup. You know, maybe you move to Seattle or SF, not because you have family there, because work is there. So you're isolated. You're probably not that religious. So you don't have like a community you're plugging into. So you're coding at work. And then, you know, to sort of get away from the cycle, you're, you're coding after work. And I think open source communities give like this strong sense of identity to people where they feel like they're contributing something to that to something that's greater than themselves. And actually, if you look at it, the I think the structure of many strong community-driven open source startups reflect the structures of a lot of religions. Like for example, like the first git commit, like, well, that's the founding document, like that's like the Bible. But then like you have the main contributors, well, like they're the evangelists, like they're the ones who decide what gets added to the history. They have memes, you know, like, oh, like hugging face is all you need, pip is all you need. And I think this is this, this is insane because traditionally, if you look at SaaS startups, like they invest so much time in marketing, they'll spend money to go talk at conferences. If they want to recruit people, they'll interview like maybe 100 people to hire like one person. Whereas with Hugging Face, let's say if they want to hire someone, like for example, they like they had a high profile hire in Sylvain Guger, for example. And the reason they hired him was because the guy was already contributing so much to the library. So if you want to recruit people, all you need to do is to look at your Git contributor graph and just hire the top people, offer them a base salary, Bay Area salary. Tell them like, look, it's okay that you can work remotely. And that's great. Another thing is that like, let's say, you know, Kaggle for a long time became the CV padding thing where initially people were like, well, Kaggle reflects real world data science skills. But now it seems like almost everyone I see on LinkedIn is a Kaggle master. And I don't think that's a coincidence because if you tell people like, look, if you become a Kaggle master, that's a good way for you to get the six figure tech job. Then, you know, everyone's going to try to become a Kaggle master. Now I think it's like, well, like if you contribute a data set or a new birth architecture to Hugging Face, then, you know, that's going to help you. And then you can get like a really high paying job. So I think there's so many externalities to being a community driven startup that you have like a mind share where people want to see you succeed. They want to contribute to you. And this is, I think, like something, an aspect of like reflexivity that's really become very you know, obvious in recent years. Like, so reflexivity, by the way, is just this, this idea that the more people believe in something, the more likely it is to be true. And I think we've seen three strong instances of this in modern times. So one is Tesla. You know, people keep saying like, well, it's, it's you know, it's not a car company. It's, it's an internet company. It's a tech company. And that's what justifies valuation. Same for Bitcoin. People keep saying it's, it's a bubble for like 11 years, but it keeps increasing in value. The same for GameStop. You know, oh, obviously, like, you know, GameStop isn't worth what it is. But enough, if enough people say it's worth something, then, you know, the stock goes up. The company can sell its shares. Now they have a whole bunch of money. So now they're actually more likely to succeed in their mission than a company that doesn't have that. So very similarly to Hugging Face, I think by virtue of people believing that this company is going to succeed, the more likely it is to succeed. And you can see this, by the way, in their recent press release announcements. Like they had this very, I laughed so hard when I saw this line because the CEO literally said something along the lines of like machine learning shouldn't be in the hands of like the few big tech companies. It needs to be democratized over the entire community. And I read the statement, I'm like, what corporate company would ever issue a PR statement like that? That was kind of punk, right? It was like, look, we're going to bring down the big tech companies. This is us. We're the community, like popular revolution. We're all behind this. This is a lot more compelling than, you know, we unlock business value for your business. 
And I think this is something that, again, when people try to value Hugging Face by not putting the community equation in it, it's just going to seem like a bubble. When I think it's just, it's a very strong community, maybe like a cult. And I think a lot of more tech startups are going to be like this. Like, let's say Replit is another example of this, where, you know, you contribute to it. The, the founder will like personally reach out to you. They'll advertise your project. He'll help you get funding. So basically giving people a sense of meaning when using product tools, I think is hugely underrated. Yeah, the Replit point's really interesting. And I guess the, the whole idea around building a brand and a cult around uh, a project can drive so much usage and adherence and stickiness. So as we near the end of our time, you wrote this this article, this was back about a year and a half ago. What's changed since then? Do you have any new insights that if you were to write the rewrite machine learning the great stagnation today, you would have enumerated? So so I did, for example, do some slow edits over it. Like for example, I did briefly mention biotech. There's like some memes that I added. Like, like, like for example, the one on like comparing data engineers to regular to, to ML engineers. But actually I think that the article somewhat stood the test of time and that it's true i think that not much has changed like i I still stand by the bitter like sutton's bitter lesson is true as in scale beats out over complex ideas and that it does seem like as far as new algorithms are concerned that we've run out of ideas outside of you know basically casting all of your problems as a supervised learning problem i think that was a profound like, like, like that was a profound way in which a lot of engineers now think, like, can I cast my problem as a supervised learning problem? Reinforcement learning is actually one example of this, like given, given observations, predict the reward. Self-supervised learning is another example of this, given like surrounding tokens, predict the existing token. So this framework, I think, of thinking of problems as supervised learning problems, I don't think is going to go away. And I don't think we've seen the full impact of it yet, because it's a very profound way of thinking about problems. I think, though, I still stand by, as far as core ML goes, I still think there is a stagnation. But I think the outskirts are blowing up and increasing at an exponential pace. And so I think people should be more okay with doing machine learning and something. Uh, you know, if you told me, like, you know, like, like, choose anything to work on, I think probably, for me, the most exciting thing right now happening in machine learning is what Unity is doing, which is helping more machine learning engineers becoming game developers, because I think games are the most compelling data set of all, because they just generate free data. So I'd encourage more people to look into that and more people to build, you know, online cults and online communities. And just be okay, you know, maybe like ML has grown up, like, like this is not a bad thing. Like it's been incubated in academia for decades. Some ideas were very powerful, scale and casting your problems as supervised learning. It's okay. Even if there's not more stuff like it's like doing research in classical mechanics right now. Like sure there's some problems left, but they're not like at like they're not like these big problems. I think the big problems are all at the intersection of how do we use ML? And I'd encourage more people to just uh, look at them instead of being a bit too attached to what their graduate student advisors were working on. Cool. Well, Mark, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Is there anything else you'd like to add in conclusion? I think that's pretty much it. Like, Thank you so much, Jeffrey. I appreciate it. Wonderful.